for uh, your kindness to us and just the fact that your mercies are new every morning that we have the chance to be up this morning and rejoice in you today and um, just thankful for the way that you've revealed yourself in your word and nature but so clearly in your word and especially in your son pray that as we look at your word today that continue to be encouraged by who you are and and as we know you more fellowship more with you and and enjoy the fellowship we have with you because of jesus in your name we pray amen all right so if you guys are reading grudem you know that grudem's definition of knowledge this is his of god's knowledge is that god fully knows himself which is an interesting statement to most people because they don't think much about that fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. Did you guys catch that? So there's some parts of that definition. It's what we call omniscience. You guys heard of the om- omniscience? Mm-hmm. Right? Omni is what? All. What's that? All, right? Okay. And what does science mean? Knowledge. Knowledge. Okay. Uh, that's why, incidentally, uh, religion is not opposed to science. We are not opposed to knowledge um, of any sort, right? Um, so, anyway, knowledge, the science is knowledge, omni is um, uh, all, so it's all-knowing, right? God is all-knowing. And we say he's all-knowing, we start with him fully knowing himself. Does anybody know why we start there? What are your guesses? Why would we start with God fully knowing himself? It points out that we don't and we never can fully know God. It kind of helps put some perspective on it. Yeah. Why is that a big deal for him to fully know himself? Because yeah, well and 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 if he if he's eternal and infinite, right? Then then knowing himself is is know, fully knowing himself is knowing a whole lot more than just fully knowing his creation. Once you once you posit that God can fully know Himself, now knowing His creation, this finite creation, is not such a big deal, is it? Because you're talking about an infinite, eternal being. You guys follow me on that? Okay. So He fully knows Himself and all things, actual and possible. Why do we say actual and possible? When we say He knows all things, actual and possible. What has happened and what might happen. Or will happen, maybe? Well, all things actual are all things that maybe I could say encompassed have happened and will happen. So what do we mean by all things possible? What could happen? You know, all things that could have happened... He's not bound by time. I mean, there's possible things could or would happen to him. Yeah. Anything that could or would happen. And when we say could, I mean, by possible we mean things like... um, uh, Jared could choose this or this. He knows all things actual. Um, if there were a given set of conditions, Jared would choose this. If there were a given set of tradi- uh, conditions, Jared would choose that. Now, given the set of conditions, you made the choice that you, Jared made this choice. But if I had this set of conditions, Jared would have made this choice. He knows all things possible as well. That's important, and we'll get to why that's important. But can anybody give me a scriptural example of Jesus knowing all things possible or the Father God knowing all things possible see it with Jesus any examples you guys can think of 
Grudem gives the one of David fleeing from Saul. Yeah, okay, so how does Grudem explain that? Um, well, it's right here. He rescued uh, the city from the Philistines, and uh, he stayed there for a time, and then he decided to ask God whether Saul would come to Kayla and attack him, and if Saul came, then this, and if he didn't, then this. And so God knew you know, the answer to that. Yeah, he asked him, possible. okay, well, if I stay here, will the people of the city hand me over to him? He goes, and, and the Lord told him, yes, they will. So he left. Yeah. So there's there's the, the Lord doing something possible and the actual thing. You guys follow that? Okay. All right. So God knows everything all, himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. You guys follow that? One simple and eternal act. What's being stressed here on that part of the definition? That he always knows it. Okay, that he always knows it. That he doesn't have to ponder, think deeply, pull out his his scrolls and research. (laughs) Yeah, ponder and think deeply. Well, and here's the thing. He's not learning. Okay, think about how you know things. How do you know things? What's that? Gathering more info. You're gathering information and learning, right? And what... If you're anything like me, what astounds you is the older you get, the more you find out you didn't know, right? And the more information you get and go, wow, man, I was wrong about that. And you just continue to learn, right? But what's happening with God is we say one simple and eternal act. He's not learning something new, ever. He's always known. Does it, you guys follow that? That's important because if God was learning, what would be the problem? He could errors. He's changing. He could err. There's something bigger than him. There's something bigger than him. He has to explore something. He have not anticipated certain conditions or decisions. That we yeah, make. he wouldn't be all-knowing. Yeah, would be all-knowing. He wouldn't have anticipated certain conditions or decisions we make. I mean, we could go on and on with the problems. If God could change, we can go on and on with the problems, right? <clears throat> Maybe later on he looks at his plan of salvation and goes, that was a bad idea after all. Off the hell with you, right? Okay, you know, you know, who knows, right? Um, th- those would all be problems, wouldn't they? Okay, um, so I, that definition is, is a helpful one. Let, let's just stress this. First, God knows everything. Can some somebody read Job thirty-seven? You guys have your files, thirty-seven sixteen, and somebody else read First John three twenty. Have you guys help me turn these passages so we can move more quickly? I'll get first John. Oh, do you? Okay. I'll, I'll get it. I don't know yet. Who's got Job thirty-seven sixteen? Anybody? You do. Uh huh. You got it, Matt. Uh, or that was me. Okay, go ahead, Brian. Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of Him who is perfect in knowledge? Yeah. Okay. Wondrous works of Him who's perfect in knowledge. All right. Well, who's got first John? Yeah, I'm not there yet. I got it. Right. You got it? Okay. It's 320. Yep. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Yeah, okay. He knows everything. All right. So God doesn't just know everything. He even knows himself. So let's, let's, who knows where it says in scripture that God knows himself? Well, I mean, such as, such, what's that? The passage you talked about in Luke, the Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father. Yeah, there's that one. What 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 else is there? First Corinthians two. 
What does it say about the Holy Spirit? What does he do? First Corinthians two and eleven. Where he searches the depths. Searches the depths of God. The knowledge of God. Okay. So, um, you guys follow me on that? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, God knows all things actual, but let's give some examples of that. Can somebody look at uh, read Matthew ten thirty? And um, somebody else read he- Hebrews four thirteen. one example of God knowing all things actual. He, he's numbered the num- your hairs on your head. Right? Um, of course, we could do- dive into Psalm 139 and say even more about that, but but we won't right now. But he, who's got Hebrews 4.13? I do. Okay. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay. Uh, God knows all things future. Um, somebody read Matthew 6 8, and somebody else read Matthew, or excuse me, Isaiah 46 9 and 10. Matthew 6 8, or Isaiah 46 9 through 10. I got Matthew. Okay. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Okay, so your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. What does that mean? He knows the future, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, you, you guys realize that when you come to prayer, right? That's a prayer passage. He doesn't want you to be like the pagans. What's the problem with pagan prayer in that passage? Anybody know? Just uh, vain repetition. And... Yeah, there was repetitious babble as if God, you know, is being informed <clears throat> about what you need. And as if you say it enough times, it sort of, you hit this magic formula where God will finally do it, right? Um, Jesus just says, stop, you know, babbling on about this stuff, right? You guys pray, you don't, you don't just, there is no magic in repetitive prayer, right? And Jesus says, the pagans are, don't pray like the pagans who are just constantly repeating the same phrases over and over and over again. Um, As if, if they just say the same phrases over and over again, it somehow it somehow obligates God to do something, right? Um, like witchcraft. What's that? Sometimes I, I, I liken to witchcraft. Um, some people think this certain formula will yield these results. Incantation. Yeah. It is an incantation. It's the, it's, it is a form of witchcraft. You guys understand something? Have you guys ever heard of the phrase syncretism? What, what does syncretism mean? When you blend your culture with uh, your um, Christian faith. Yeah, okay. So you take, and there's, there's syncretism in all, all religions, right? Okay? But you can syncretize the, the, the culture with that religious belief, whatever it is. So if you go to Africa, you have folk Islam. You guys know what folk Islam is? Hmm. What is folk Islam? Just to take uh, like animism or zoastrism or whatever they're, you know, belief system was before and then they just you know take Muslim traditions and lay it on top or or uh, have them side by side so they'll if you're in Turkey or you know they'll touch a little icon on the door it has nothing to do with 
his lot, but that's a, a Zoroastrian like tradition. They throw them in a blender. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's what I believe. <laughs> yeah, you go to you go to um, parts of Africa, you run into a folk Christianity as well. Um, I ran into it, folk Christianity, quite a bit when I was in Africa, and and I'll give you an example of it because Africans are most in most parts of Africa are, are animists, right? What does it mean to be an animist? Does anybody know? Spirits are possess inanimate objects. Well, the spirits can possess inanimate objects. The spirits can possess animate objects as well. <laughs> Basically, there are spirits of all types and forms. These spirits are are gods in some sense. They're all pissed off, it seems. I, I, does anybody know? Are there any happy <laughs> gods among the animists? Does anybody even know? Okay, they're all just angry all the time. Um, they they want to have sex with your women. They want to eat your food. They want to, you know, go on. When you're from. They, yeah, and you've got to constantly be doing things to keep them happy. <clears throat> or they will come and jack you, haunt you. Your dead ancestors will become ghosts and haunt you if they're pissed. You know, these kinds of things, right? Okay? Now, um, in, in Africa, I was at a church where it was a Christian church. Trained, the pastor was trained by a local missions um, agency. Um, here from Bakersfield, I won't, who shall remain unnamed. They trained him in their school, and then he went out to pastor a church. And so I went to attend his church to check out what he was teaching. And I was appalled when he started off by chewing out the Africans for being late. First of all, clearly nobody told him about African culture, even though he was an African. He somehow decided that African culture was out the window because you don't, you're not late in Africa for anything, incidentally. Uh, just African time and American time are very different concepts. Has anybody ever been there besides me? You know, Joel's been there. You, you, okay, so you, it's a very different concept, right? But then when you choose them out for being late, he says, I'm going to send, if you keep getting late, I'm going to send your dead ancestors to haunt you. Right? <laughs> yeah. I'm, like, I'm like, wow, there's a Christian pastor for you. Um, that, is a, that is a syncretizing of animism and Christianity. Follow me? That happens in America, by the way. We syncretize Christianity with um, Western rationalism to some degree, um, and Western culture in, in, in various ways I'm not going to get into today, but, but we, we, cause, we bring about syncretism as well, right? We, we mix the two. I, um, have, I have a pet peeve on that one. What's that? Good luck. Yeah, yeah, good luck. <laughs> Knock on wood. I'm like, what are we, some kind of pagans? What are you knocking on wood for? Uh, but anyway, so you get all the um, you get all the different sayings. But but one of the syncretism, big syncretism in American Christianity is American Christianity with some sort of Eastern mysticism slash um, New Age paganism. Things like um, if we say the wrong things, then maybe certain things will happen. You guys know what I'm talking about there. Don't say that. You know, as if your words speak reality into existence, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is not biblical in any way, shape, or form. Um, and one of the ways that happens is through incantations and prayer. So people mix, uh, what, divinization is the big one now, where I go out there and I wait for God to tell me what's going to happen, right? And we, we just try to divinize in some ways information from God. We call it listening to the Holy Spirit, um, but it's just divinization with a different name. Um, and so, so we, we're, we're waiting for some future information, right? It's some kind of a 
some kind of a syncretization that's happened between Christianity and, and, and paganism. And we see it in prayer. And the big one is just constantly repeating phrases. Anybody think about prayer phrases that are big in um, American Christianity that, that are repeated a lot? Yes, that's a hedge of protection. Hedge of protection. Bind Satan. Oh, yeah. Bind Satan. I just want to know if we keep binding Satan, who keeps letting him go? The, um, I do not want to know. Anyway. All right. The, that, that's what bugs me. What's that? In Jesus' name at the end of a prayer as if that's going to As if it's a magical phrase. Right? Now, what to pray in Jesus' name is to acknowledge that there is no way you have a right to come before God and be heard apart from Christ. But it isn't actually a phrase that has some sort of spiritual quality attached to it that if you neglect to say it, you're you're in trouble, right? Um, and God won't hear you. You guys, you guys follow that? Okay. Um, all right. So God knows all things future. Luke chapter ten. Um, if if you, somebody can look at ten thirteen. I just, pat, I just preached through Luke 10, but I want to talk about God knowing all things possible. Right? God knowing all things possible. What What is 10? Can, Matt, can you read 10, 13? Uh, yeah, it's... it's Jesus you, speaking, by the way. Go ahead. Uh, what do you... Chorazin? Chorazin. Chorazin. Who do you... What do you... Vasita? Uh, For if the mighty works done you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Yeah. Okay. Who's Tyre and Sidon? Bad cities nearby. <laughs> bad cities nearby. <laughs> <laughs> Historically, really bad cities, right? Okay. They're Vegas. Yeah, yeah. They're Las Vegas style cities, right? Okay. So, but of the ancient world, particularly mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, very pagan kind of cities. Now, these are the, you know, sort of the bottom of the barrel, the bottom feeder kind of cities, right, from a spiritual perspective. So when, when Jesus makes a statement to, um, to a city like um, where he goes on later here and, and spanks, um, in the same passage, I think he goes on and spanks Galilee, particularly Capernaum, right, um, in the same passage, or the people around there, and at the same time says, if the same works have been done in, <coughs> done in, in Tyre and Sidon that have been done in Eucorazin, um, they'd have repented. He's spanking that the people he's talking to right there, isn't he? But what's he saying to them? You're worse than they are. You're worse than Tyre and Sidon, right? Um, why were they worse? Were they worse <coughs> because they were Im- more immoral than Tyre and Sidon? From an outward perspective? Hardness of heart and unbelief. Yeah, because they were self-righteous. They were too self-righteous to receive Christ. Or it says, Tyre and Sidon, man, they were about as immoral as they come. They're, they were another version of, in a sense, of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Which in another passage, Jesus references Sodom and Gomorrah in a very similar fashion. But um, another version of them. And and he's saying, listen, if, if I had gone there, they'd have repented now that's knowing all things possible, isn't it? Mm-hmm. He knows what would have happened had he done this. Now there's a group of people out there who believe in what's called middle knowledge. You guys ever heard of that? Okay, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because because most of you haven't heard of it. 
but it's quite a popular view, and essentially they say, well, of all the possible worlds that could exist, God knew all the possible worlds that could exist, and that he created, um, he created the world with the, which was the best of all possible outcomes. Um, yeah, it's super helpful, by the way, in pastoral counseling, when someone's in their hospital bed, you, and they're looking over at you and, and suffering, and you say, well, this is the best of all possible worlds, rest assured. <laughs> you know, <laughs> anyway, but the point is, is that it's true that God knows all things possible. You guys follow me on that? that we don't have to posit middle knowledge to get there. Because um, they talk about necessary knowledge and free knowledge with God, and they get into this middle knowledge discussions, which I'm not going to get into today, but... but God knows all things possible. He just does. He knows if certain conditions were in place, certain results or would have would have obtained. Okay. All right. God knows all things eternally. All things eternally. He does not learn or forget. Okay. Can somebody read Second Peter three eight? Somebody else. Psalm ninety verse four. Let's go. I have Second Peter three. Okay, go ahead. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Is this one day up? Yeah. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises; some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, or reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Yeah, and, and what's being put out here by Peter at the beginning is what? What's the question in Second Peter three that he's addressing? Does anybody know? What's the problem he's addressing for the Christians? In Second Peter? What's that? Why the return of Christ is being delayed? Yeah, and specifically, people are mocking the Christians, right? They're saying, "Where's this Jesus return that you're talking about?" Right? Where is it? Paul said he thought it was coming in his lifetime, and Paul did think it was coming in his lifetime. Um, so should we. We should assume it's coming in our lifetime. If the Apostle Paul assumed it's coming in his, we probably should assume it's coming in ours, because Jesus said it's soon, near. I don't know when that means. I'm hoping it's in my lifetime. That's my hope. I'm supposed to be prepared. Yep, I'm joining J. Vernon McGee in saying I'd rather not pass through the valley of the shadow of death. Right? Um, I know he'll be with me. I'd prefer not to have to ever go there. I'd just rather him return, you know, and um, and that's what I would prefer, just for Jesus' return, and that's what I'm hoping for. Uh, but Second Peter three, if people were mocking them for Jesus re- not returning then, how much more now, mm-hmm. right? And so where where is this return you're talking about? And Peter's response to it is, <clears throat> don't you know that with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day, and days like a thousand years. What's his point? Not bound by time. It's not bound by time. Yeah. You know, that doesn't mean that, well, we're in 2012, so it's been two days. <laughs> okay? That isn't the point he's making, all right? And, you know, God likes seven, so in 7,000 A.D., that's when it's going to happen, okay? So you guys follow me on that? All right, that's not what it, that's not the kind of thing it means. It's, it's people get weird with numbers, right? Um, Numerology is another bizarre syncretism that happens between Christianity and paganism. Um, so so it just means he knows everything eternally. 
He's eternal. He works eternally. Everything knows everything eternal. All right. Who's got Psalm 90, verse 4? I got it. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Yeah. Okay. It's just, you know, blink for him. He knows everything. All right. Eternally. All right. So how does the knowledge of God get perverted by some evangelicals, even, or some who call themselves evangelicals? It's easy to pick on all of the unbelievers out there, so let's just pick on the believers, all right? Um, let's, let you know, I don't want to hit on just the low-hanging fruit, all right? <laughs> that's that's the easy stuff. How, how, do the, how, how does this idea of the knowledge of God get perverted by evangelicals? I think in our modern day, especially with middle knowledge and those sort of conceptions, people almost have this view that uh, uh, that God's detached from the world and is just looking, you know, down the corridors at times uh, passively. And so people get this idea that God is not actively involved in every event in their lives, and sort of just make God the, the grandfather in the sky who just wants the best thing to happen for his, you know, distant family, but. He's not actively involved in everything. Okay. He is. They also make that idea of middle knowledge, and they makes they're using it to make God contingent. These are all the best possible worlds. God would know if you would ever, in any circumstance, ever trust in Him, and so somehow that that makes God contingent upon us, which starts to go into the decree as well. Yeah, when we get to God's decree, we'll deal more with what you're talking about, because that's that's a great question. You you start to take the knowledge of God and detach it from personal relationship and covenant and and decree what He decides, and it becomes a very the knowledge of God becomes this very cold, distant sort of thing. He just kind of knows everything, and there's just it's just you guys follow me on that. It becomes very conceptual and cold. All right, so that that is a problem. Uh, but we'll deal more with that when we get to the decree of God, um, providence of God, etc. What, 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 um, what else is out there right now it, under the guise of evangelicalism? Anybody? Would, there, would fatalism fit in on that? Or? Um, there are some that run down the road of fatalism. If God knows all things actual and possible, what's the problem? What's the, what's the use? What's the point? <clears throat> Nothing I do matters. Right? <clears throat> they just become fatalistic. Let go and let God. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> let go and let God, which is actually, we'll deal with when we get to sanctification, because that's just Keswick theology. Um, so, but, but you, you guys have probably heard that phrase. It's just, you guys heard the phrase, let go and let God? Mm-hmm. It comes out of Keswick theology, which is a, a view of growth and holiness or sanctification that is sort of a higher life perspective. You guys know what I mean by higher life? That there's this way to get in touch with the Holy Spirit in a way you never have so that you uh, that you sort of become exceedingly passive in the process. I just pray and wait for God to do this work. I don't have to press in to my sanctification to grow. I just sort of wait for God to take me to the next level of sanctification. It comes out of Keswick in, in the UK. Um, was a big Keswick conference um, there in the 1800s. That was the groundwork that was laid for what later became the charismatic movement, particularly the Pentecostal movement and second baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
is familiar with that. Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, so, um, but the, um, yeah, because we'll deal with that some other point in time. Second baptismal, I mean, the whole let go of God phrase. All right, um, here, here's some of the stuff. How about this? Um, God doesn't know the possible. God doesn't know the things that are possible, all things possible. That's, that's being posited in evangelicalism now. And, and why, why would they say God does not know all things possible? Because he chooses not to know. Well, or, or just because he doesn't. He can't know oh, okay. all things possible. Because if God knows all things possible, then at least, who said fatalism? Oh, no. was that you, John? Yeah. Because if God knows all things possible, that leads to fatalism. That means he knows my choices before I make them. So if he eternally made... So I want you to run into this problem. This is, this is forwarded by a group of guys called open theists, also known as process theologians historically, but they believe that God can't know all things possible because if he knew all things possible from eternity, the problem would be this. If he knows all things possible, so that means before he created any being, he knew which beings would choose to reject him. Right? That's the Arminian position, incidentally is that God knows all things possible and actual. That's Arminianism. And he knew before uh, the beginning of time, before he created anything, who would choose and who would reject. You guys have heard that before? Okay, that's not anything new to anybody. Um, and the problem with, of course, the position uh, for Arminians is that if that's true, he knows all things actual and possible before the beginning of time, that means he knew who would reject and accept. That means he knew who would go to hell and he still created those people. He still created a huge mass of humanity who he knew would reject him and go to hell. That means he created people who were going to hell. And so Arminians don't want to go there, right? Um, they're not willing to accept the idea that God created people he knew was going to, were going to hell. So what they said is, well, then he couldn't have known the possible things, all things possible. It's Again, it's, it's an issue dealing with the problem of evil, and how do, you, how do you deal with all those kinds of things, but then he couldn't have known things, all things possible from eternity. So they just, they just take that off the table. So he couldn't have known your choices before you made them. He makes really good estimates, predictions, and guesses. Right? That's what they say, but he didn't actually know. Isn't that part, partially predicated on their idea that, that in order for your choice to be truly free then God can't know it ahead of time. That's exactly what it's predicated upon. For it to be truly free, for you to be truly responsible, and for God not to be guilty of creating people who are going to hell, you, all those things together, he can't know ahead of time. Because if he knows ahead of time, if God knew before the foundation of the world, before in eternity past, in one simple divine eternal act, God knew all your choices before he ever made them, and then created you, are your choices really free? Right? You guys see the problem? Okay? So the way open theists resolve it is by saying he could have known. Now the Bible says he knew. So, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> and you got to deal with that. But the, the, they wanted to, so he couldn't have known. It's very popular open theism. A guy named Greg Boyd is a big open theist um, who's, who's quite well known out there. Clark Pinnock um, is an open theist. Um, 
you know, I, I says the, the popular mainstream open theist is John Eldridge. You guys have heard of him. There's an organization known as YWAM that's open theist as a, a by theology as a group. Um, most people aren't aware that YWAM is open theist by theology, but they are. Um, so there, there's, there, there are se several um, different organizations like that. All right, we, I won't get into all of them now. Um, um, the, other, the other thing people say is that God knows these things, so then he decrees as a result of his knowing these things. That's, that's Arminianism. So here are the two problems. There's the open theists, and then there's the Arminians, which will say, well, he knows all things, and therefore he makes his decisions based on what he knows. And the, raw, the problem with that, of course, is, is that means he decides after the fact. Right, Joel? And Joel's making the comment that he makes God contingent. Yeah. Um, that's not what the Bible presents, which we'll get to when we get to the providence of God, on the decree of God. But what the Bible presents is that why, how does God know all things? Because he decreed them. Because he decreed them. <laughs> he knows them because he decreed them. So he knows them. He decided them in advance. Um, and that's what the Bible teaches, and we'll get into that when we get to providence and, and we get to um, the decree. Uh, okay, all right. All right, Ob objections. Let, let me deal with some objections here. What about Isaiah 43, 25? As far as God knowing and not forgetting. Can, can somebody look there? Isaiah 43.25 and Jeremiah 7.31. Who wants to take those two? Or one of each of those? Anybody want to read that? Uh, just 25? Yeah, 43.25, that's it. Uh, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Okay. I will not remember your sins. But didn't you just say God doesn't forget anything? Yet he says, I won't remember your sins. All right, so um, what, what, what's this talking about? God's just saying he's not going to hold you accountable to them. On the day of judgment, he's not going to bring them up. And there they are. Jesus paid for those. Like, what's that? Like, well, I mean, like, Jesus paid for those. So, like, he's not... He's not counting against you. Yeah. He's using human language in Isaiah to express the idea of you know, not remembering it. Okay, when we talk about forgiving and forgetting, right? Okay, we need to forgive and forget. In one sense, that can be a very biblical kind of phrase. And in another sense, it's an unbiblical phrase. So what do we mean by forgive and forget? When we say, we just need to forgive and forget. What do we mean when we say that? We're absorbing the loss, and, and there's really no, I mean, rather there was any repentance or payment for that wrong that was done, to just forgive it, forget it, move on. You're not holding the other person accountable at all. Yeah, you're, you see me, don't bring it up again. Yeah, you're not bringing it up again, you're holding it down. It won't somebody, have an effect in the future. Yeah, what was, was somebody raising their hand over here? Yeah, I was just, um, in Hebrews 8, it, it uses that verse in Isaiah and it says after uh, the last verse and speaking of a new covenant he makes the first one obsolete so it kind of goes with what Randy was saying first one there being Moses' covenant yeah so yeah. he's really saying the new covenant is, is what brings us the release of 
percent, you know, as remembered against us. So. Yeah. So you guys, I mean, just stop thinking about this. When you say I for, I'm going to forgive and forget, and and in a healthy biblical sense, you don't mean what that I'll never remember what you did. Okay. What you do mean is, I'll never remember what you did, i.e., I'll never hold it against you again. Right? God, God doesn't, like, go, you did what? <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. You, you guys follow it? And let me give you the perfect example of that. Old Testament saints. In other words, Old Testament believers who are saved. Um, God forgave them. Isaiah 43 is talking to them first. Right? And he remembered their sins no more. But what happened when Jesus came? According to Romans chapter 3, what happened when Jesus came? He paid for their sins. He paid for their sins. Old Testament saint sins. So clearly God didn't forget them in the sense that he didn't remember. Like, oh, I forgot about that. Okay? That's not the way in which he forgot or didn't remember. Clearly he remembered them in the sense that Jesus went to the cross and paid for them. Romans 3, 21-25 is clear about that. Um, Old Te- these people are already dead and forgiven and with the Father. Right? In Abraham's bosom. You guys follow me on that? But their sins were because why? They were looking forward to the Messiah. Jesus came and paid for their sins. Okay? Um, so he, he came and paid for them. But, but God forgot about them in the sense that he didn't hold them against them relationally. All right. Well, and you see that when in uh, different books in the New Testament, when, when, when God is speaking about the Old Testament saints, He's clearly looking at them differently than what the account is in the Old Testament. Oh yeah, Hebrews eleven is like God's view on the men in the Old Testament um, in Christ. That He sees them as saved people. It's a very interesting chapter to read because I feel like Hebrews eleven. You read it, and it's like did. If you wonder if the author of Hebrews 11 read the Old Testament. You know what I'm saying? And you know he did, but you, you get the point he's making because he's this guy by faith did this, and by faith this guy did this, and suddenly all their sins aren't being detailed anymore. Right? Which, if you read the Old Testament, man, their sins were great, a lot of those guys I mentioned. All right, Jeremiah 7.31. Who, who's got that? Yeah, 731. Read it. Yep. Uh, They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. Okay. So doing that never came into his mind. He never imagined that could happen. Is that what it's saying? God was taken by surprise by it? It's actually better translated, just so you guys know from the Hebrew, in order to enter into my heart, right. not my mind. In other words, the idea is what was being said there is, I, I just, I, I, I would never have personally endorsed something like that. That wasn't good. Okay. Wasn't it true that like in Hebrews, heart and mind are very, very similar concepts? <coughs> um, not really separated like we do. We don't. We don't. Sep- they don't they're not separated the same way we do. We separate emotion from reason, typically. Well, they would talk about the heart um, as the seat of of all the faculties. So, um, faculties of your will, your mind, 
um, your, your affections. We use the word emotions a lot now. Emotions probably isn't the best choice of terms, but yeah, affections, what you love, um, et cetera. So, all right, um, what about our freedom? That's the other objection to this, right? Knowledge of God. And I get, like I said, we're going to deal about it with it more later. What about our freedom? This is all true. What happens to our freedom? Is that not the big objection? What do you hear people cl- cling to the hardest? It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. Don't we have free will? Free will. Isn't the Bible clear about free will? Actually, the phrase is never used in the Bible, except once with regard to offerings. Free will offerings is the only time the phrase is ever used in the Bible, incidentally. The only time the phrase is ever used in the Bible. Didn't it say God by his own free will? Doesn't it refer to God at one point? Um, not, not with that exact phrase. I mean, the, the phrase free will is only used in, on offerings by Paul, Second Corinthians. But um, that's it. Only time that exact phrase is used. But I, I can, there, there may be some combinations very similar to that. You'll have to look up. But, um, you know, what about it, right? That's our big objection. Because we have, we've, um, as, as um, John Owen said, we've taken the, 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 the idol of free will out of the dung heap of humanity and washed it off and bowed down before it, right? Mm. Um, all right. The, um, how does this apply to us as Christians? How does this apply to us as Christians, the knowledge of God? Comfort us that God knows it's going to happen, and we don't have to worry because it's going to work out for our good. And that could give more to the creation. Good. God's knowledge of you ensures His ongoing care for you, right? It ensures that. Psalm 139. Can somebody read the first five verses of Psalm 139? Because you're exactly right, Jack. Search me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. It's pretty clear God's knowledge of us is ensuring his ongoing care, right? Um... It, it, it in fact goes on if, if you will push it further as Jack said it ensures that everything will be for your good and his glory so if you go on in Psalm 139 Jay still have that verse 15 through 16 my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret uh, intricately woven in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every, every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Yeah, okay. So God numbered in his book all of your days before there was one of them. Right? Now you take that in conjunction with a passage like Romans 8, 28 um, through 29. Anybody guys familiar with that? Right? God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Right? And then what does he go on to say? 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Why? So that he might be the firstborn right, among many brothers. Right? Okay? So, so what, why does... What, what is Paul talking about there? The reason we will be conformed to the image of Christ is uh, because that glorifies God ultimately. That Christ will be all in all. A part of his glorification, that's why he's saving us. Yeah, he's numbered all your days. If you're his, one of his, you know, he, he's numbered all your days and he's working for your good all the time. And your ultimate good is what? To be like Christ. To be like his son. To be like Jesus. There's nothing better than that, right? And when we are like Christ, then he becomes the firstborn among many brothers. He becomes the supreme one or the preeminent one. It brings him glory. So you say, what, what's my ultimate good in this cancer? Um, we think the ultimate good is healing or some circumstantial thing that comes out of it. Um, according to Paul, that's not necessarily the good that God's going after for you. Um, although there, that may be there, but the ultimate good he's going after for you is that you become more like Jesus. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, okay. Um, God, the, here's the other thing that applies to us. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Uh, his way is higher than ours. You've got Psalm 139 still, Jay? Verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So I cannot attain it. Isaiah 55, 9. Does anybody, can somebody look at that one real quick? Isaiah 55, 9. Um, make sure I have I've got it. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher. Than your thoughts. Yeah. Okay, so what's the contrast there? Our thoughts and our ways versus God's. And what's the comparison that he's using? What's the analogy he's using? Heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. The heavens are way higher than the earth, right? And so are his thoughts way higher than our thoughts. You guys follow that? Okay. All right. Um... You know, back in that day, too, it was impossible for a man to enter into the heavens of his own power, right? So there was a distinction there where now we can, you know, jump in a spaceship and go up, quote, into the heavens, right? Uh, yeah. But before it was an inex- inex- inaccessible realm to us, and so. Yeah, God didn't anticipate that one. <laughs> I'm just saying that when they read that at that time, culturally, it's, God was so much higher, it's culturally inaccessible. It's, culturally, that's even more extreme, is which thing I guess. Yes. All right. Um, smart mouth. All right. Wisdom. That, huh? Well, plus, heavens are not strictly defined by just the heavenly bodies, but for Sky, the yeah. same, same word would be for uh, a spiritual realm. Sure. All right. Wisdom. Let me try to land the plane on wisdom quickly. All right. Um, God always chooses the best goals and the best means to attain those goals. You guys follow that? So when I say the best goals, He always chooses the best goals 
that's the best ends, right? And he always chooses the best means to attain those goals. Does God ever choose the wrong means? No. Right? He always chooses the best means to attain those goals. Even if we don't like the means he chooses to attain those goals. Anybody ever get God use means in your life to attain goals in your life that, he, that were good, but you didn't like the means he used? Anybody? Okay? That, yeah, I think so. I mean, I can you, you think about sickness in the family. You know, you think about uh, problems in your marriage. You can think about... Oh, you can go down the list of all the kinds of things that God has used that you would never pick for yourself, but in God's judgment were the best means to achieve the goals of making you like his son. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, can somebody read Romans sixteen twenty seven? To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Okay. He's the only wise God. Got it? Clear enough? He's wise. Alright, God is wise in creation. Psalm 104.24, who can read that? And I, Here's what I want to do. Psalm 104.24, somebody can take that one. Somebody can take 1 Corinthians 1.18. Well, actually, I'll just, just hold on to that one. Somebody can take Romans 11.33. Romans 11.33. Uh, someone could take Ephesians 3.6. Someone could take 2 Corinthians 12.7. All right. God is wise in creation. Who's got Psalm 104.24? Anybody got it? Nobody got it? I got it. Okay, go ahead. Oh, Lord, how many are your works? wisdom you have made them all the earth is full of your possessions okay so in wisdom he made everything all right god is wise in redemption who has romans eleven thirty three? you have it jeff no anybody have it uh you got it oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways yeah okay Oh, the depth of the wisdom, right? Knowledge of God, okay? Um, what, what does that follow, by the way, Romans, that part of Romans 11? Long discussion on God's sovereignty and election. Yeah, sovereignty and election and salvation, right? It follows basically 11 chapters of Paul laying out the gospel, right? And after he lays out the gospel of redemption for 11 chapters... He then concludes with this sort of hymn, almost this sort of praise to God. Um, oh, you know the depths of right the wisdom, knowledge of God. Okay, um, it's so deep it's unsearchable. First Corinthians one. I'm going to read that just with regard to God's wisdom and redemption, because redemption doesn't always seem wise to everybody else, does it? Okay, salvation doesn't always seem wise to everybody else, but. 118, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness, right? But to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not go, know God through wisdom, it pleased God through fault, the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Um, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Is that clear enough? About God's wisdom and redemption? All right. God is wise in new creation, in the new creation. Um, and, and if I want to take it further, the new creation, specifically his new covenant community, the church, his wisdom is shown. Ephesians chapter 3, who has that? Verse 6. Right, read through verse 10. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, given me by the work of his power. To me, to me, though I am very the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light of everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Yeah, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. What does that verse mean? He's just been talking about the gospel. God's done this. He's had this plan hidden in him for ages. And now... Uh, this plan is so that through the church, the wisdom of God might be known among the rulers and authorities, heavenly places. What, what does that mean? I think it means that uh, from a ruler's perspective, uh, looking at God could say, well, why did God create the world in this way? And no one really cares about God that much. Did he make a mistake making the world? Um, and, and by the presentation of the gospel, it shows that he didn't make a mistake. In fact, he had a purpose in the, in the world and that everything is going to rebound at his glory. So uh, it, it displays God's wisdom that he, he used means that were wise. Okay, and what, 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 what is, um, in a specific, you're right, Jack, in the general sense, but in the narrow context of the passage... What what who are the spiritual authority or the authorities and cetera in that passage? We know. What does it say about the authorities? What does it call them? What kind of authorities are they? Or rulers? In heavenly places. In heavenly places. So who's it talking about? Angels. Yeah. Angels and demons. Right? Speaking of the Da Vinci Code. Yeah. Wis the wisdom of God is being shown to angels and demons. 
They're seeing his wisdom. And, and how are they seeing it? Through the church. That Jews and Gentiles are both being brought to salvation in the church. The manifold wisdom of God is being shown. Salvation blows away angels and demons, incidentally. You guys follow that? The idea of this new creation, this new covenant community known as the church, blows them away. In Peter, we're told that, they, that, that things uh, pertaining to salvation are things in which angels long to look. What, how, how could that be? Angels have seen God for their entire existence. Demons have as well, though in opposition to him. Um, now, at one point, they were angels, okay? But, but they fell, and they're in opposition to him. But, but how can these beings that have seen God in all of his majesty... They know his wisdom. How can they be blown away by salvation? I think because in their experience, there are those that fell away from God, and there is no path back for them. Okay. And so from their experience, they see that when you disobey God, you incur his wrath. The idea that God would roll back his wrath for some people is mind-blowing to them. Okay. Yeah, they have a very static existence. See, and that's so dynamic, like moving from death to life through Christ. Yeah. Anybody else want to take a crack at that? Add well, to it? Then plus the fact that God takes upon Himself the uh, um, what say? the payment for that yeah. sin, yeah. and He's He's the one that they're they're constantly around, you know, singing holy, 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 and yet. Yeah, the idea, if they've forever known the eternal trinity, right, forever in their sense, since they were created, okay, not forever because they don't eternally exist, but since they were created, known the eternal trinity, to see a member of the trinity, the son of God, become man, first of all, had to have been mind-blowing just just right off the get-go for them. Remember, they're learning, just like we learn, they learn. And they had it, the creator became a creature. The lawgiver put himself under the law. Right? And then to see him not only do that, but die. Pay the penalty. What's that, John? Take upon our sin. Take upon himself our sin. The blessed one became the curse. Right? That had to be mind-blowing for them. It has to be absolutely mind-blowing. So that he can bring together Jew and Gentile. And in the church, and say, and and display before them the manifold yeah. wisdom of God in His plan. You, you guys follow that? So okay, all right. Um, God is wise with our individual circumstances. <clears throat> Who has Second Corinthians twelve seven through ten? I can take it. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited yeah okay so he had this messenger from Satan given to him keep him from keep him from becoming conceited um, uh, in other words God is working in the individual circumstances in Paul's life right why because Paul had had these serious hardcore revelations right incidentally God the third heaven um one of the only men in history who ever 
was caught up to heaven. The third heaven is, in fact, heaven. And he doesn't tell us anything about it because he was commanded not to. And if he doesn't write a best-selling book about his vision of heaven, right, of having his trip to heaven, right, okay, he just, he just, uh, he just says, God, God told me I can't tell you guys about this stuff. It's essentially what he says. And then what does he go on to do? He tells us, that could have made me really conceited. Therefore, God did what? He humbled me. <laughs> he humbled me. He gave me some sort of thorn in the flesh. In some way, he humbled me. As some kind of messenger from Satan. God is wisely working in Paul's individual life circumstances for Paul's good, right? So he doesn't become prideful and conceited. Now, what's a messenger of Satan? Um, well, in the in Scripture, what's a messenger of Satan? A demon. A demon. Okay. So, did he have a demon? Was he demon possessed? Some scholars say he had some physical ailment, particularly with regard to his vision, which he cites in one case. I'm not. I'm not at all convinced that that's what's being talked about here in Second Corinthians twelve. I think in the context of the of the letter to the church at Corinth. What is Paul dealing with constantly with the Corinthian church? What is the big problem? <clears throat> Particularly in 2 Corinthians, but even in 1 Corinthians. What's the Corinthians church big issue? Do you guys know? The return to the pagan ecstatic practices. Well, that's actually not the biggest problem. That is a problem. But what, what's the biggest problem for the Corinthian church? Anybody know? It's Paul's leadership. Yeah, Paul's leadership. They have big factions divisions over who's who's a good leader and especially whether Paul's a good leader or not and especially and what and 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 verse 10 states that right that there are divisions and factions among you and then if you go in in chapters 3 and 4 he starts dealing with those divisions and factions I'm of Paul I'm of Apollos I'm a red letter Christian you know what I mean by that I'm of Christ okay um, you guys know that Paul had to deal with red letter Christians as well Okay, I only read the words words of Jesus. Okay, so you, you go down the list of, of, of issues. I'm Christ, etc., etc. Now you go forward um, in Second Corinthians. The whole letter is written for Paul to defend himself. Christians aren't supposed to defend themselves, by the way, right? Paul writes a whole letter defending himself because he's being falsely accused. I'm not sure where we get this idea, incidentally, that Christians are never allowed to defend their reputations when their reputations are being maligned, right? Falsely accused of things. Because Paul writes an entire letter defending his reputation. It's called 2 Corinthians. His reputation's being maligned. What are they saying about him? He's weak and unimpressive. He's weak and unimpressive. Oh, he sure writes big, right? He writes letters, he sure seems like a big man. Let him come. And later in 2 Corinthians, he says, you don't want me to come. Yeah. <laughs> you should thank God I haven't come. Because, <laughs> you know, okay, if I come, I'm going to lay down the law. I mean, like, seriously, he's really strong. What, what, else, what else do they accuse Paul of? Potentially trying to scam them for money? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Is this really like they like, say he's like a womanizer too, right? Or is that... They, they just accuse him of having very bad motives. Potentially he's a womanizer. He's coming after the women. He's coming after the money. He's coming after, um, you know, he's, he's weak. He sounds real impressive in a letter. 
but he's not real impressive when you meet him. Okay, you guys follow me on all this kind of stuff. He's a bad leader. We'll call him a man pleaser. He's a man pleaser. <laughs> he's after his own good. You guys follow the accusations Paul dealt with? He deals with all these accusations. Um, and he writes a letter responding to all that. And in the letter, one of the things he says is, God gave me a messenger from Satan to keep me from becoming too prideful. That's you. <laughs> and I think it's them. I think that's actually what he's saying. He's getting at, you're it. Right? You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> What's that? He's sarcastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have been used of God and his wisdom to keep me from becoming too prideful. Right? You plant a church and they eat you alive. It does help you from becoming exceedingly prideful. Okay? I have people in our church that regularly help me with my pride. They don't do it in the kindest way, but it's helpful in God's wisdom, right? All right, okay. Uh, will we ever fully understand how God's wise decisions are in fact wise? Will we ever fully understand how his wise decisions are in fact wise? Fully, no. Maybe in heaven? We probably will know better in heaven, mm -hmm. and we will forever eternally learn Right? You won't get to heaven and all, all of a sudden know everything. Why is that? Because then you'd be omniscient. Right? But will you learn? Mm -hmm. And will your will sins tainting of your ability to know and think rightly be taken away? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what you'll know, you'll know truly. And you'll always learn. And you'll have access to the eternal source of knowledge. Yep. You'll be asking God face to face. <laughs> Okay? You're just always going to be learning. But you will never know the depths of the wisdom of God fully. Uh, you, you may see the picture more clearly, but you'll never know it fully. All right. Um, um, how is God's wisdom often denied or rejected, even by professing Christians? One that's been bugging me a lot lately is when people say, I rebuke cancer. That's not going to happen. I, I was new cancer. Yeah. That's got a whole lot of problems. It, it really right? does. But As it's a total it's, denial of God's cancer wisdom. And then rebuked it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's the question again? How, how is God's wisdom often denied or rejected? We don't trust it. Almost everybody you meet with. But let me, let me, clear, let me just, even by professing Christians, let me, let me just narrow it to professing Christians. Okay, because we know unbelievers deny or reject God's wisdom. That's clear, but professing Christians. Yeah. So how do you see it happen without giving away well, without client privilege? Yeah, yeah. Without, yeah, without breaching confidentiality. Uh, gosh, a lot with the can cancer, you know, uh, troubles, you know, the, 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 what is it, the theosophy, not uh, the, uh, oh, what, how do you deal with a good God with all these evil circumstances and so forth? Theodicy. Um, Theodicy, yeah. Theodicy, yeah, that's what it is. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, why did my you know wife leave me? There can't be anything good about that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, why do I have these manic episodes? There can't be anything good in that. Why do I have um, you know? Why does my kid have autism? There can't be anything good with that. You know, a lot of these things I deal with it all the time. Overall yeah. denial of his sovereignty, really. Yeah, and his goodness, <clears throat> right? Um, 
even if you accept his sovereignty, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem of his goodness. Because he can be sovereign and jerk. Yeah. Right? True. Um, but he's not only sovereign, but he's good. And um, I think we, in his, when we reject the wisdom of God, we are rejecting often the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God, both. Mm-hmm. Um, we struggle with both. Um, and, and, and they're legitimate questions. When my wife was sick for seven months, I, I, I was going, what's God doing here? It's hard to know how this is God's wisdom at work. Well, I just believed it was. I didn't like it. I didn't know if I would ever know what all he's doing there. You guys follow me on that? And as a kid, my dad was killed when I was six years old. I still don't know why God chose to do that, but in his wisdom he did. In his goodness he did. Um, but but if, if you ask me, well, how specifically was that wise and good? I don't know. It just was because he says it was. Hey, Chad. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Do you think sometimes, I know, especially in the, the, the Word of Faith uh, churches, a person can be made to feel almost uh, bad that, you know, when we go through those circumstances, we, we sense that we're inferior. You know, we, we realize that at some level we're not God. You know, we, uh, we are like children. You know, we're brought to the Father. And so sometimes that trusting can be, you, you get what I mean? Like, yep. you know, in other words, faith is determined by my response more than who God is. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes my response, if, if I cry out to God, you know, we all have that. We're, we're put into circumstances and we're crying out to God and we're going, God, I don't know. I, I, my knowledge is limited, my, you know, but you, you are unlimited. And so there's a bit of a child-father relationship going on there where I'm cast upon him. But in, in the Word of Faith churches, it's almost like you're made to feel like your faith is not enough because it's in you, not in the object of your faith. You know what I mean yeah. by that? So there is a kind of a... How much you have going for you is based on the, the, the virtue of your faith more yeah. than it is the, the virtue yeah. of the object of your faith or God. Yep. That's exactly right. Um, i got to land the plane here, so let me see. How do you grow in wisdom so that we're wise as God is wise? How do we grow? Ask for it. Ask for wisdom. Okay. Who's the most famous person in the Bible that asked for wisdom? Solomon. Solomon. God gave it to him. I ask for wisdom constantly. That's one of the things Jared and I pray for, for him and for me, when we pray together, is for wisdom. God would make us wise. Um, it's it's something we ought to ask for all the time. In James 1, it's specifically we're to ask for wisdom in the context of suffering. Right? In that context in the passage of James 1, you're asking for wisdom with regard to your suffering. Right? Help me understand this. Not necessarily all the details of it, but that you're wise in the midst of it, and you guys follow me on that? Okay. Um, good, etc. So ask for wisdom. What? How, how else do we... Become wise. Right. Hear God's word. Psalm nineteen seven, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. Um, if you think Deuteronomy twenty twenty nine, twenty nine twenty nine, the things that have been revealed belong to us. Right. That's the word of God. The things 
that have not been revealed, those things belong, the secret things belong to the Lord. Okay? So get into the Word, hear the Word, follow the Word, and it's going to make you wise. Psalm 19, 7, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Um, ask God for wisdom, James 1, 5. Solomon is a human being, right? <laughs> His, the whole story of Solomon, okay? Well, do you guys regularly ask God for wisdom? Should. You'd be amazed at how he gives it. It's amazing. And if, if you want to grow in it, then you better press into the word, because that'll help. You ask him for it, press into the word. I gotta tell you guys, I've asked for wisdom for a long time, and pressed into the word to get it. And God has brought me to the point where I, I look at passages of scripture now, and it's just like the whole thing unfolds right in front of me. It's so it's sort of whereas I used to just sit there and go, what in the heck is this talking about? And I try to wrestle through it and work through it. I had to read 15 commentaries to try to figure it out. And you follow me on that? And it's just God has increasingly given me wisdom and in understanding His Word. And you you can get that. Just pray for it, ask God for it, and press into the Word. What what else? What's core in getting wisdom? What is the most core thing? Other than asking for pressing word, what's the most core thing? What does Solomon tell his son in Proverbs? You have to have this if you're ever going to be wise, son. Yeah, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 1-7, obviously Proverbs 1-7, Proverbs 9-10, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear God, you're not going to have wisdom. Right, and, and lastly, you've got to trust the Lord's sovereign work in your life. You have to trust his work in your life. 1 Peter 4.19 talks about that. Um, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Right? Trust the words, the, the, the work of the Lord in your life. That's how you become wise. You guys, you guys follow me on that? So fear God. Fear God. Ask for wisdom. Press into the word. Be a hearer of the word. And trust God's sovereign work. And, and, and that's how you grow in wisdom. Become like him. It's, it's not rocket science, incidentally. It, it, it just takes the regular application of knowing God's word, fearing him, revering him, trusting him in all things, and asking, praying. It's, it's pretty simple, isn't it? Worship God, pray, and read your Bibles, right? It's pretty much the answer to every question. <laughs> you know, you guys, you guys follow me on that? <laughs> um, and you'd be amazed. Spend time in Proverbs. Young men, especially. Young men, spend time in Proverbs. Young Christians, read Proverbs. Read it a lot. Read it over and over and over again. Uh, wisdom is significantly lacking in the life of young men, particularly. Um, and the way to grow in it is to read Proverbs. I'm telling you guys, read Proverbs. Can't say it enough. Um, okay. Uh, let me pray. Father, we're just thankful for your uh, kindness to us in Christ and the fact that you've revealed yourself in your word and we can know more of you. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to grow in our knowledge of you and your work through your word. And we pray as well that you would create us a holy fear and reverence for you and give us great wisdom, that we would be men who walk in wisdom and, and thus please your son, that we would be like you so that you'd be pleased, so that your son would be exalted. 
In Jesus' name, amen. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. Attributes of God will continue next week.